This is Media Business Matters, the podcast about why recent news in the media businesses matters to people who love media. I'm Amanda Lotz. And I'm Alex Entner. In this episode, we're going to be doing a news roundup because there's been a lot of news related to kind of shifting distribution practices in TV and film. So we're going to take a look at some of the bigger stories that have come out in the first couple months of 2018 and talk about whether or not they matter and what they might mean for the future. So the first thing we're going to talk about, the Cloverfield Paradox. All right, Alex, why don't you introduce this one? What happened? The story here is Paramount, coming off a really rough 2016 and 2017, was worried that this movie wouldn't make money, especially given its April 20th release date and some of the competition around it. So what they did was they sold the global rights to the film to Netflix at a price The Hollywood Reporter reported as over $50 million, which is more than makes up for the $45 million production budget for the film. They announced it with a Super Bowl ad, and it dropped right after the Super Bowl. Is this a story that really matters? Well, I think a lot of the discussion that I was seeing was, oh my goodness, uh, this just totally ruins NBC's uh, post-game plans for the big This Is Us episode. And that totally misunderstands the state of contemporary distribution. The point was not that people watched Cloverfield Paradox immediately after the Super Bowl. Netflix doesn't care when they watch it. Um, I'm curious and impressed that they chose to put a Super Bowl ad that were coming in at around $10 million um, behind that single film, but it certainly uh, was buzzworthy and got a lot more discussion. So, you know, in terms of post-Super Bowl competition, in terms of any idea of this is a change in practice of how films are distributed, no, I don't think that's a really big deal. Well, let's take your first point there first, Um, because as far as post-Super Bowl competition goes, the This Is Us Where the Man Dies was over... 25 million, 30 million people. There wasn't a shot. Cloverfield Paradox, I think, early numbers I saw, about seven or 800,000 went and streamed the film after the game, which that's a pretty solid number for something dropped at the last second. The number doesn't matter, right? We just <laughs> need to stop talking about numbers that don't matter. I can't even imagine being having a life in which I can at last minute decide to watch a film after the Super Bowl. Um, let alone that I do anything after the Super Bowl. Right? So the idea that like there was any kind of significant audience just changing their decisions at exactly that moment, that's not the point. The point was it's in the Netflix library. It's mm-hmm. not going anywhere for 10, maybe 15 years. It's there. And it's also from this big franchise. But to approach your second point there, talking about whether or not this might be a shift in distribution practice, this isn't the first film that Paramount has made a deal with Netflix on this year. Um, At the very end of 2017, Paramount sold the international rights, so everything except the U.S., China, and maybe a couple of other countries, to Netflix for the film Annihilation, which is a film that has a pretty starry cast behind it. It's got Natalie Portman, it's got Oscar Isaac, it's got America's sweetheart Gina Rodriguez. This isn't a small movie. It's a $55 million budgeted movie. All right, so basically on par with Cloverfield. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't have the same kind of name recognition as a kind of sequel would, um, but certainly name recognition of talent. But, you know, coming in roughly the same point, what we'd call in these days a very much a mid-range film. 
and they still gave it a theatrical release here in the U.S. It opened to $12 million, and at this point, we're really not sure how long of a legs it's going to have. Its cinema score wasn't great, but reviews were good. I saw the film, and I thought it was fascinating. The question here becomes, is this kind of a new way for a movie studio who is worried about the theatrical performance of a movie to essentially get some of, if not all of, its money back? Yeah, no, I think the really interesting part about the Annihilation story is how quick the Netflix drop follows the international the release, right? So mm-hmm. just just three weeks. So that's getting pretty darn close to day and date, you know, in terms right. of some of these discussions. And in those countries, it won't even be released in theaters at all. And importantly, it it is shrinking that window, and so all of the promotion that has been spent on Annihilation is going to benefit the film in, in every window, right? Now, I think, so there's this question of, of is this a way of, of salvaging low-performing movies or films that are perceived that they're, they're you know, either facing too much competition or, or they're just, you know, not uh, worth the additional cost of promotion? I, I think it's important to realize that Netflix isn't going to just buy anything. I think if we, if we look at both of these films, they are very strategic in terms of the way that we they fit with what are established taste communities that Netflix already seems to be serving uh, with its original series. And, and in that sense, I think you know, the story behind Cloverfield Paradox, the timing was, was really perfect for piggybacking on the launch of, of Net, the Netflix series Altered Carbon. Mm-hmm. You know, not only were they reaching a very specific taste community, that sci-fi horror genre group, you know, they were letting them know in a very big way that this is an important part of the programming that Netflix has to offer. Right, and both of these pieces are darker than something like Stranger Things, but it kind of does play into, you know, the sci-fi horror genre type, and, I mean, Annihilation is such a weird film. Right, so the point here is that, will this work for any film? Is Netflix just going to come along and save the day? No. Um, If it's a film that looks like it's going to fit in with uh, audiences that they already have or have some sort of value to Netflix, then perhaps. And, and, And I think this is... This is generally a good thing for the industry, right? Um, and as we'll talk about more, talking about the film industry as though it's this singular thing is is really becoming more and more useless. And so you know, different kinds of films can have different distribution strategies. They, they are all still films. It's okay. Um, but I think actually what a mechanism such as Netflix um, picking up a original release here is actually only going to increase the diversity of films that are available. Now, let's talk about another Netflix film here. Will Smith's Bright. It's a sci-fi movie with, you know, that big star name in Will Smith. It costs $90 million, which is nothing to sneeze at. I mean, that's low by blockbuster standard, but that's high for what we would assume a streaming service would want to spend on a movie. it's basically twice the the two films that we've just been talking about. Right. I mean, it was critically panned. Um, very negative reviews. I haven't seen it, so I can't speak to its quality. But 11 million people watched it in the first three days of release. Right. And so some of the initial coverage about it was, you know, doing some pretty simple math and saying, well, that's the equivalent of a $100 million opening weekend. But I think it's important to acknowledge that just because people watched it on the service that they've already paid for in their house does not mean that they were going to pay to go out and see it. Right. This isn't Netflix's biggest movie investment either. They're making a movie with directed by Martin Scorsese that was actually originally developed at Paramount but then moved to Netflix when the budget reached 125 to 140 million. The cast has Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, Bobby Cannavale, Ray Romano. And 
it's going to cost like a cast l- of vinyl. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to cost a lot of money. But and it's it's another big investment by Netflix. Right, and this very much fits with uh, some messaging that Chief Content Officer Ted Sarandos has had out there recently that this kind of blockbuster original film strategy is going to be part of what Netflix is doing going forward. And so I think the question that we have to think about here is what is going on here? And, And I think this fits very much with the last story. I've been skeptical about the blockbuster film strategy working for Netflix because its viewership is so dispersed and that actually, for the most part, it's finding value in collecting different niches. So I think it's really difficult to think on a creative level that it's going to be easy to come up with films that are going to have wide appeal. But on the other hand, I think Netflix has identified that on a weekend, you want to watch a movie Mm -hmm. and that... It increases their value proposition if they can be known, in addition to the library content that they already have, that they can be a destination for a new movie. You know, not something that you have to go searching through the catalog for like half an hour trying to find something that you and your friends, your family haven't all already seen, um, but that there's some sort of new content that's likely to be generally desirable. Now, back in the 90s, HBO found that by establishing their Saturday night premiere, they incre- they were able to increase subscriber satisfaction significantly. And so I think something like that is probably at play here. Absolutely. And I mean, Netflix hasn't shied away from kind of blockbuster content. I mentioned Stranger Things earlier. That, I mean, it looks like a niche show, but it's it's approaching a pretty wide audience. Well, right. But I think we have, defining the term blockbusters is pretty tricky. And so I think in, in the purposes here, sort of I've been using it as really this notion of dumping a whole bunch of money into something. Mm-hmm. And whether that's dumping a whole bunch of money to buy big talent, which is really what you're doing with both the with the Will Smith Bright case and with the Scorsese film. And because you know, Netflix can make films that can attract specific taste communities. Uh, it's really not in the position that it can follow the, the playbook of major studio blockbusters. You know, in order to have those major budgets, you need to be able to monetize it through the many different windows. And, and that's not the position Netflix is going to be in. They really have to be able to uh, effectively pay back their cost by having something that is valuable really only to their, their viewing base. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm at least interested to see what they come up with in this regard. Yeah, I mean, Netflix is still in the very early days of being a movie studio. And while these are both really interesting stories, of course, they have been totally overtaken in recent weeks by the release of Marvel or Disney's Black Panther. Alex, let's talk a little bit about how the film's done. Right. So Black Panther, Marvel Studios' latest. He was introduced in Captain America Civil War, and he got his own movie that came out a few weeks ago as of this release through 10 days the movie has made $400 million in the U.S. and an additional $300 million around the world, giving it roughly 700 ish million. No matter how you look at it. It's a very strong open. Yes. It took $200 million in three days in the U.S., which places it in the top five of domestic three-day weekends, and then $235 million over four days, which just obliterated Deadpool's record for the top President's Day weekend release. It also brought in an audience that was much more diverse than your average blockbuster. The audience was 37% African-American and 35% Caucasian. 
which, given that audiences are normally about 50% Caucasian, that's a notable difference in the makeup of an audience for a big film like this. Well, of course, and it's also a very notable difference in terms of what we're seeing on screen Mm -hmm. and the most black cast film I think I can remember. um, In a big blockbuster setting. In in, in a major studio release. So, you know, across the board, we have one of these cases where uh, there, there certainly a lot of hype about the film, but there was a lot of speculation about whether who would go and see this, how many people would actually go and see it. And so once again, we have one of these movies that threatens to potentially change and challenge the industry lore about what works and what doesn't work. Right. Um, there have been some stereotypes about what films led by African-American actors could do. Well, I think just the perception that white audiences wouldn't go and see right. um, black cast films. And which so, just isn't... Which Black Panther... If you, if you take the lesson from Black Panther, that's not necessarily the case. Right, but I think we also have, unfortunately, many cases where industry lore has been challenged, whether it's with a, a film with a black cast that does really well or a film with a female cast that does really well, and everyone says, oh my gosh, it's so different now, and then it isn't. So mm-hmm. um, I think the, the film was great. I think the response has been great. But again, we always have to just wait and see what really happens. Right. The soundtrack was great. Kendrick Lamar's soundtrack for the movie. It's been playing on repeat uh, while I've worked for the past 10 days as I've... Uh, all the stars. Kendrick Lamar, SZA. Look it up. It's fantastic. And so I think, though, you know, this isn't just a, a current story. This does fit with the two other stories that we started with in terms of the need to talk about film, and for that matter, television, with increasingly specific language. So we see across these stories an environment in which we see a wider range of film practices emerging. Just three different ones here alone, whether it's straight to a streaming service. Major studio to streaming service. Right, major studio to a theatrical release and then streaming services three weeks later. And then we also have a major studio film that just blows everything up and and Mm -hmm. shows what a blockbuster can do. The idea that the film industry or that contemporary distribution technologies allows for multiple strategies is really, as I was saying before, a good thing in terms of making more types of films possible. And there's been a lot of complaint, concern in the industry in recent years that the theatrical exhibition space and the dynamics of, of the industry were really only making big blockbusters with known IP and CGs and superheroes, that that was really the only thing that could be made. And and I think what actually these new distribution technologies suggest, they shouldn't be considered as lesser or secondary, but as vehicles in order to that make different kinds of films possible. Though Matt Solar Sites would probably look at us and say, you're forgetting about that the importance of the theatrical window. I've seen a lot of tweets from him recently about how this, uh, especially Annihilation, the failure of something like Annihilation might lead to the denigration of the theatrical window and having it not necessarily be the home. You know, you say it gives the opportunity for a wider range of films, mm-hmm. but that means that it might not, ne- those windows might not necessarily be in the theater. Absolutely. And those right. No. So I think the theater was the place for film. Um, historically and technologically, but there's nothing that, like, casts that in stone. 
there, there are a number of practices that spin off of that, and historically, the second and third window prices uh, for the film have been set often by how well it does in the first one. So there's a lot of adjustment to be made in industrial practices. You know, I think I think we have been conditioned to believe this thing that the theatrical window is all important. But if you're measuring success by whether or not a particular title makes back its costs and then makes a profit, uh, for a long time um, there have been films that have been very profitable without the theatrical window, and we just have to look at the straight-to-DVD movement um, for, for some kids' movies. And so, you know, we, fan- we uh, fetishize, I think, the theatrical release, and for some directors, it's really important. Um, like Alex Garland, the director of Annihilation, was talking about how it's a shame that not m- as many of the audience members as he might have expected were going to see this movie in theaters. I mean, it's a big, very visually spectacular movie so to have it maybe not be in theaters and it's filled with lots of little details that you might not necessarily see on your tv screen yeah i i cannot be won over by this argument (laughs) if there are too many films that just don't get made um or don't get any kind of of substantive release and i think actually that the story here is really positive for creatives and 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 filmmakers um if they can get over uh the big screen release and I think the other piece of this is, you know, acknowledging that getting people into a theater is tough. Um, you know, you need a film, um, an experience, and a value proposition, and we'll talk about that in a second, um, that all fits together and makes actually going to a theater worthwhile. Uh, and that tends to mean, in this day and age, big budgets. And there are, as I've been saying, so many other stories to be made and audiences who want to see them, you know, but maybe they want to see them in their pajamas. And a service like Netflix is trying to build a business around a revenue model that allows for that range of films to be made. So speaking of theatrical exhibition, <laughs> like that, tra- that, what a transition there. We're going to talk again here about MoviePass, a subject that we have talked about a couple of times on the show, but there was a recent interview with Peter Kafka on the Recode Media podcast with MoviePass CEO Mitch Lowe that both Amanda and I listened to. And I thought it was really interesting. Again, for those of you who haven't necessarily heard those episodes, MoviePass, it's a service. It costs $10 a month, and there are also options for $90 for a year with Costco. Where you go, you pay them that much, and you get to see one movie a day. Now, they don't do 3D, they don't do IMAX, But you get to see one standard screening of a movie a day for that $10 price. Yeah, I thought the interview was really interesting because it gave a lot more data um, that one sort of supports some of our sense of different movie-going audiences, and it also clarified the business model for us a bit. And so one of the things that that Mitch Lowe noted was that the movie audience is actually made up of not in equal parts, uh, moviegoers somewhat like you, Alex, and me, (laughs) 89% of moviegoers are, are more like me. Uh, we go to see maybe four or five movies a year. Um, so we are contributing to a significant amount of uh, empty occupancy, let's say, uh, in comparison to uh, Alex, you, uh, the group that, uh, the 11% that go to 18 movies or more yeah, in your for me, case. For me, it's well more than 18 okay. every year. Understanding, first of all, that that's actually the dynamic of the moviegoing marketplace is important. Um, but given that those audiences aren't equal fractions, so MoviePass is basically making 
there's, there's many parts to the business model, and that's what right. came out. That's what I liked about it. First of all, is making a bet on the fact that light viewers are going to compensate for the heavy ones. Sort and, of like a gym. Yeah, and they've got the data at this point that even, you know, you join up and maybe you go to four movies in a month, but sure enough, over time, like with the gym membership, you know, you're actually not going as frequently, and so they're, they're hoping that it washes out to more or less 12 movie trips a year, which is a huge increase for someone like me, um, and, you know, whatever isn't in that, um, you know, balances out the overages of, of someone like Alex. Still, though, in some markets, tw- if a person sees 12 movies a year, w- MoviePass would still lose money on that person. Well, that's, that was the additional pieces, those were the additional pieces of information that came out in the, in the interview that I thought were really helpful. One of the things that was clear is that um, MoviePass has produced different results for different types of movies, and it's being embraced and rejected differently by different theater owners, and then that has to do with you know some of the other aspects of its business model that are part of the story. He talked a little bit about, for example, the battle with AMC theaters. MoviePass has pulled out and is not allowing its members to go to, I think it's eight AMC movie theaters in major markets. So th- these are like, you know... The Empire 25 mm-hmm. in Times Square, or the, one of the major theaters in L.A., where, quite frankly, th- these are the areas where a movie pass will lose money on one movie for a person. Right, but that wasn't why they were pulling out. And they right. were also acknowledging that there was a competing theater nearby. Basically, what they were trying to do with that was to illustrate to AMC the value that MoviePass is providing mm-hmm. by increasing the traffic to the theater that comes with having people with MoviePass subscriptions. A result of that is that some of the mid-sized chains have really embraced MoviePass right. um, because they are the ones that are more likely to really need to increase their occupancy rates. And so what's happened is that MoviePass, after showing some of these theaters how much it can increase the traffic, which the theaters are being paid for the butts and seats, but also increases in concessions. Which, which is where movie theaters make their money right. to begin with. Well, not all of it, but a significant yeah. amount. That in those cases where they where MoviePass has been able to illustrate those gains, that they've been neg- able to negotiate lower film rates. And so in many cases, they're paying like the group discount that you could get if you were taking your softball team to the movie theater. Um, And so they're not actually paying full freight. My read of it is that they're once they illustrate their value to the theaters that they're really hoping to negotiate uh, lower prices, that will make it more difficult to sort of make this evaluation about whether MoviePass is losing money or not. But um, that makes their business model make a whole lot more sense to me. But the other really interesting thing that came up um, was the different results for different types of movies. And so, mm-hmm. you know, so again, the 89% that are going to four to five movies, you know, I've been to see Black Panther, right? We were going to see that no matter what. But right. You it, also saw Paddington 2. I did. That remarkable gem of a movie. Also true. Um, but, you know, maybe I wouldn't go to see anything this week unless I had movie pass. Mm-hmm. Um, so what they're finding is that it's some of the smaller films that people might not have gone to see without sort of having basically a free pass to go see another movie. Yeah, I've seen some data on how movie pass has contributed to the sales of some of the Oscar movies this year. Lady Bird, Call Me By Your Name. I, I don't believe the chunks are like, you know, majority movie pass, but there's a sizable chunk somewhere in the low... 10, 20, 30% that was provided by MoviePass, which is nothing to sneeze at. 
Right. And so related here, MoviePass has another revenue stream available to it, sort of recognizing that it, one, it knows what movies you go to see. And so therefore, it's probably building some sort of profile on what kind of films you like. Oh, it is absolutely building a profile on what kind of films you like. We don't say absolutely until they show us the data, but (laughs) we can presume. But they're selling access to their subscribers Mm -hmm. to the studios as a venue for promotion. Right. And so for those smaller films, let's go back to, let's say, Cloverfield Paradox. You know, if Paramount is concerned that, you know, that film's not going to do well if they hadn't sold it to Netflix, um, you know, going to MoviePass and saying, we want to very specifically target people who like this kind of film, they're probably going to get a much better return on their advertising investment going with that kind of promotion than, you know, trying to buy a TV ad during a general TV show or a billboard on a major street. Right. I've actually gotten a handful of emails from MoviePass. I should mention, um, if I because ha- I haven't already in this episode, I'm a subscriber. MoviePass loses money on me. <laughs> I'm sorry, MoviePass. I see in the range of two to four films a month using the service generally. Um, and that doesn't include the films I need to reserve a ticket for, because that's kind of how you break it, mm-hmm. is you make your seating reserved, and usually those theaters will fill up a day or a day before the movie screening, and then, you know, you'd have to go to... You can only buy movie pass same day. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's something we've mentioned. Mm-hmm. And in most cases, you actually have to go to the theater. So if you have to reserve your seat in advance, you can't really use movie pass to get that ticket. But the point I was going to make with that was... Um, I've gotten a few emails from MoviePass about upcoming releases. Like, for example, when Call Me By Your Name was going to go wide, I got an email from them saying, hey, Call Me By Your Name, this is supposed supposed to be a good film. You might want to go see this movie. And lo and behold, I did end up going to see Call Me By Your Name that weekend. You have potentially discounted prices on tickets once they prove to theaters their value. They're also approaching theaters asking for a cut of increased concessions. Mm-hmm. That's also a revenue stream. And that's one of the things that AMC has kind of said, yeah, you're not getting this from us. Well, and, and, and that's fine. And they, mm-hmm. you know, it will, it'll be interesting to see what happens as they push people away from those AMC theaters. Uh, and then they have the ability to sell promotion marketing to the studios uh, to target very specific audience members. And, and, and I mean, like, that, that's a really interesting exchange there. Yeah. Because if you're the viewer, it doesn't, you know, like, you're being you're being promoted something that it doesn't cost you anything more to see, mm-hmm. right? It's really just a, a piece of information. As long as that recommendation is helpful or interesting to you, you know, it actually perhaps just generates goodwill for MoviePass. MoviePass effectively loses money, conceivably, depending on how much you're already going to the theater. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, then they can take that piece of information that they're increasing the amount of, of theater going and, and try to uh, you know, help their model on the other end. What was interesting to me was that uh, Lowe does not talk about data and selling the data. Which, which had, was one of the initial ideas for how MoviePass would make money. Right. And, so, and, and I was so skeptical about that. So um, I will continue to be skeptical about that. But Just I, like I will continue to be skeptical <laughs> that MoviePass's model will work, will work at all. I'm a little bit more confident now than before the interview, but I've still been reluctant to get that annual pass. It would save me, you know, in the range of $25, $30 on a year. But, you know, I was worried that, you know, MoviePass wouldn't be solvent enough to be around for that year. Uh, I think they've got the investment to to count on on the year, but I think... 
you know, it's one of those things that, you know, in media industries, different consumers are price sensitive in different ways. And one of the advantages of bundling and basically what's happening with subscription is you're bundling movie going together um, is that you begin to even out some of that behavior. And, and that's why, you know, it's attractive. And, and I think in many ways, this issue of occupancy rates in movie theaters has been ripe for digital disruption for some time. Um, this isn't necessarily the way I would have expected it to go. I'm kind of surprised that the major theaters haven't been leading the way so much. And, and right. I mean, know, Cinemark has tried to put out a plan, but quite frankly, what they did was for $9 a month, you get one ticket, 20% off concessions, but, you know, you only get that one ticket for that $8, although you, if you want, or I think it's eight ninety nine actually, but if you want to get additional tickets, you're paying eight ninety nine a month, which for me, still using my student ID is more expensive than I'd pay, but as soon as my student ID expires, <laughs> it becomes uh, less than that amount. Right. When you think about other industries that are sort of similar in terms of banking on occupancy rates and how they've been disrupted by digital commerce, let's think of hotels and mm -hmm. let's think of airlines, right? Um, and so these are economy of scale situations where you, know, you are losing nothing by putting someone in that seat. And right. so the fact that there has been no last-minute variable pricing, which I kind of wonder whether MoviePass is eventually going that way, especially with the fact that you can only buy the day of. What do you mean last-minute variable pricing? Well, so you know, often you can get really good deals through um, the various services that have developed for hotels because mm -hmm. um, there's a hotel room and you know they know that they are, they're only booked 40% for this weekend. Right. And so all of a sudden they drop their rack rates even more because okay. it's better to have somebody in that room. Um, same thing for the movie theater. Or it's better a, to have someone in the seat. There's also airline model, which the price will go up within two weeks of a flight, for example, which is kind of the opposite end of what you're talking about. Right. Or, you know, if there's a lot of excess space, you might actually get a really good deal. Right. And so it's interesting that here in the theatrical distribution or exhibition space, we see something that's really complicated and evolving. Um, and that all of this is happening really at the same time that some other experiments with theatrical um, has been to increase the experience or improve the in mm -hmm. experience in many ways. For example, recliners going in theaters, which both our Cinemark and the new Imagine Theater that opened up by us here in mm -hmm. Ann Arbor have done. Right. And what's interesting to me about those is really that that hasn't come with an increased price point. In no. fact, um, you know, you go to matinee, it's even more affordable. Yeah. A matinee at Imagine is six dollars you know, for everybody. Right. But if you book ahead, you do end up paying a dollar. But in you also case. get to lock in your seat. And right. so, you know, just really the fact that this entire space is sort of acknowledging that the experience of going to the movie theater had its limits and it was possible or it's totally feasible at this point to improve it by letting people book seats in advance, either for or not a cost, because... You know, that's also important information for the theater. If they know that they've already got, you know, a full, fully, theater. A full theater for tomorrow, then that helps them make more intelligent choices mm -hmm. about, you know, what they're showing where. Like, for example, the State Theater. I actually, Friday, opening night, Friday night, I was looking at tickets for Saturday. Mm -hmm. No seats. Okay. Outside of, like, maybe a seat in the first two rows, you know. But they, they were completely sold out for Black Panther, which, go state theater. So, so to put it in fancy economic terms, right, it, it, it allows them to gauge what their demand is going to be. Right. Uh, so this is one of those places, perhaps, where we see technology making the uh, mm -hmm. transaction smarter. So let, let's shift away from film and go back to our friends at Netflix. 
Ryan Murphy, the prolific producer who was at 20th Century Fox for a long time, he's had a long and very prolific relationship with Fox that included the hits such as American Horror Story and Glee and the new hit 911 American Crime Story. Like, he has been a very productive and very successful member of the Fox family. But he is no longer a member of the Fox family because he signed a deal with Netflix for that will last for five years and is worth $300 million. Okay, so that's $60 million a year. You're right. $60 million a year sounds a little bit more reasonable, but that's still, if not one of, if not the highest deal ever to be signed by a creator, an overall deal. Well, so that's that's the thing, is that the trick of comparing apples with apples here. And so on one hand, I think this is really just, this is just a labor practice story, right? The deal with Fox was ending. There's considerable uncertainty with the Disney acquisition, and, and Ryan Murphy's products are not particularly Disney-friendly. No, he, he had a quote um, right around the time that he was negotiating, and the Disney deal was released, saying, wait, am I going to have to put Mickey Mouse in American Horror Story? And so, and, and I think that was silly. Now, so there were questions, right? And, and at the end of the day, this was a very good deal um, that also brought with it a lot of freedom creatively to work in, in multiple different ways. He's going to be doing movies, documentaries, and television shows for Netflix. But I think the, the bigger context to the story uh, is that this actually makes a whole lot of sense in response to the way in which Netflix pays its creatives relative to the way that broadcasting cable have traditionally paid creatives. And so Netflix is, when you sign a deal with Netflix, it's, it's for a cost plus. Um, basically, uh, the cost of your production plus a certain percentage. As a result, your show gets locked up by Netflix globally for, for 10 years. And that's to make up for the fact that television is usually and traditionally made with deficit financing. So with broadcast and cable, the idea is that you will make money on back-end sales for things like cable syndication or SVOD now opening up and DVDs and merchandise and all kinds of things like right. that. And so it's not that one deal is inherently better than the other. It's just that they're different and it's important to understand how and why that matters. Right. So with deficit financing, there is the possibility of incredible reward when you mm-hmm. come up with a Law & Order or a Seinfeld or, or a Friends. Or a Big Bang Theory. Exactly. However... There's also a lot of risk, and mm-hmm. for all of those that make that amazing money, there are so many more that end up never repaying their deficit. So on the other hand, cost plus, there is no risk. Um, on the other hand, there is no huge upside. Right. And so when we're talking about top-level talent, you need deals that are going to give them more incentive than the way that the you know that standard cost plus deal is written. And this kind of goes hand in hand with another deal that Netflix did recently, the one hundred million dollars. I'm not sure about the time frame of yeah. the deal they gave to Shonda Rhimes, the prolific ABC creator who created Grey's Anatomy and Scandal and had massive success and really was kind of the foundation for what ABC is today as a network. Right, and she's actually, I think, a good comparison because, you know, at the end of the day, the truth is neither Ryan Murphy nor Shonda Rhimes are only going to be making this money. Chandra is going to continue to bring in millions of dollars every year because we have 15 seasons of Greys that Mm -hmm. are being sold around the world and to different streaming services, and so she's still making huge money on that. And Greys is going to continue at... 
at ABC, American Horror Story is going to continue at FX, um, Fox is going to continue to have 911, and so Ryan Murphy and Shonda Rhimes will continue to make money off those right. shows. But it's important to acknowledge that a show like Grey's is going to continue to make huge money. Right. Ryan Murphy's shows are pretty niche, right? They're popular, they're critically acclaimed, but they're not bringing in Grey's money. Um, no. And some of them have, some of them didn't. Like, Glee, for example. For a season or two, it was a brief window. There have been 15 seasons of Grey's That's Anatomy. That's true. 22 episodes a season. That's true. Okay, so. Although, they haven't, they mainly make their money off of SVOD, not syndication. Then again, Glee didn't make money in syndication either, right. so. so. The point here is that, you know, in many ways, this is not this wild disruption, um, but it's really more and more of the labor practices adapting to the new environment. It's a new environment where you have a major buyer who's building a library, not a schedule. Because they're building a library, they want to own that content for a long time and have it exclusively. Um, And we're in the process of working out what are the models to pay talent if that's what you're taking from them. And I think the other big thing here is Netflix is not taking over. They're not going to be able to buy every creative in television. These are two, as you noted, very particular, very accomplished, top-level talent. And Still, though, if you're Mike Shore, sure, if you're Dick Wolf, if you're John Wells, if you're one of these major creators, wouldn't you be looking to something like Netflix? I mean, the big thing we have bolded on our rundown here is this isn't new. The practice of signing people and keeping them exclusively for a certain amount of years and having them produce for you isn't new. Overall deals have been around for decades. But if you're Dick Wolf, John Wells, Mike Schur, aren't you going to be looking at this and going, hmm, maybe there's an opportunity for me here too? Well, those are three very different people with very different careers. At this point, you know... Yet they're still three very power, very big, very powerful television names. Right. But, you know, it goes back again. You know, someone like Dick Wolf, he's not making shows for Netflix. Like, Netflix isn't the place you go for your episodic procedural. But yet something I've heard is that they're going to want to start moving in there soon. Well, uh, well, let's see. Let's see. Um, but right now, you know, that would be a, a new taste community for them to target. Right. Um, but right now, I think you know, the, also, the, the old business works just fine for those <laughs> kind of shows. Uh, well, there's also Mike Schur. You know, he made Parks and Rec, but he also made The Good Place. They're half-hour shows that aired on NBC and were made by NBC Studios, but they're very different shows. The Good Place is actually something that might play, that Netflix, quite frankly, has bought the SVOD yeah. rights for, and it plays very well for them. Right, and so I think it, it just is going to depend. They're going to hire the talent that makes sense given their, their programming strategies. And I think, as always, making a huge splash, getting a bunch of attention, this is something that particularly benefits Netflix, right? The fact that we have spent, more or less, yet again, another episode talking all about it, um, there's so much promotion that comes from just these kind of announcements and people thinking, my gosh, there's so much going on there. It's so important. I should get that subscription. Um, and, and all of that, that calculus in which buzz is valuable is different for a subscriber-funded service than it is for something that's trying to make its numbers based on advertising. And that's where we're going to leave it today. Um, we, we had a couple more things that we maybe wanted to get to, but, you know, we're running a little long. So we're now going to move on to the last segment of each and every show, what we're watching this week. Amanda, what are you watching this week? 
I have gone back to catch up on Shameless on Showtime, a show that just never disappoints and I think is so under-acknowledged, especially we're now into its eighth season. And, and, you know, it's a story about a family. And I was just thinking back to we've really seen in many cases these characters, you know, who started as young children really grow up on screen. And, And it's just... Again, John Wells. It's a great show, great storytelling, uh, stories that are not out there anywhere else, uh, a mix of drama and comedy, um, and I'm always glad when I uh, think to pivot back. And in spirit of our (coughs) ever-present conversation about Netflix, um, I've also been balancing my shameless viewing with a little bit of Everything Sucks, um, a... 1990s comedy. Well, yes. I mean, it's, it's, the, it's an attempt, I would say, at creating Freaks and Geeks of the 1990s, right. which would have been my high school decade. <laughs> and so I, I went in with nostalgia, um, and I don't know. It's, it's, it isn't quite, peak, uh, it is nowhere near the storytelling of Freaks and Geeks, and it isn't quite the uh, 90s as I remember them, but um, it's been entertaining nonetheless so far. Yeah, I've enjoyed it. Um, I mean, it, it kind of took a while to come into its own and start realizing the story that it wants to tell, especially with one of its characters, Kate. Yeah. It took, she um, is slowly but surely coming out of the closet and realizing kind of her own that I think is probably the most interesting arc in the show, and she's probably the most interesting character on the show. Right, and I am not that. I'm only a few episodes in. But Alex, what are you watching? I am... We're going to talk about a different streamer that we haven't mentioned today, Hulu, because I have caught up on Broad City. It airs on Comedy Central, but the entire thing is on Hulu, and I caught up there. Abby Jacobson, Alana Glazer, they're making a comedy about being a 20-something in New York, and... It's fantastic. It, it is, in in a way, it's very weird. In a way, it's very, like, it, it, it's kind of amazing what they're able to pull off. Like, they, they fill that world very well. And, you know, New York is a city that's had a lot of different stories told about it from a lot of different perspectives. And you, this is yet a different one. And I really appreciate it. The show's great. And that's it for this week's edition of Media Business Matters. If you want to learn more about Media Business Matters, you can go to amandalots.com and click on the podcast link at the top of the page. If you want new episodes delivered into your feed as soon as they're available, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and on the Google Play Store. And if you subscribe to us on those places, please rate and review us. It helps new listeners find the show. Amanda, where can we find you on Twitter? At Dr. TV Lots, D R T V L O T Z. And you can find me at Alex Entner. That's Alex I N T N E R. Thank you all so much for listening. We'll be back soon. <laughs>